You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Writer's Pit. I am your host, blogger, writer, and commercial breeder of undead unicorns, Rob Matheny. <laughs> you stole my intro, Rob. <laughs> and I am Philip Overby. Well, we are back with another edition of the Writer's Pit. Today's guest is author and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion, Peter Fugazado. And it was a, it was a great conversation, Philip. Yes, I definitely enjoyed uh, hearing about uh, the way martial arts can be used in writing and uh, his discipline and all that. It's very, very interesting conversation. And uh, like like many writers, Pitts and uh, other guests we've had on, they're always inspiring to talk to people from different backgrounds and kind of hear hear how they compose their writing and function as writers. It's really cool. Yeah, and the Writer's Pit is really a show for uh, f- for writers um, to to get into the nitty gritty details of just how the writers go about their craft and how how they go about marketing and and making themselves successful. A lot of times, it's going to be indie writers, and and we like to feature these kind of folks. and And the reason we do it is just like Phil said, we come away each episode uh, energized and charged, and and it's great to hear. Um, uh, writers talk about writing, and Peter Fugazado was was no exception. It was a great conversation. Uh, I'm sure you folks will pick up a lot of cool things uh, during the conversation, and then when we come back, we will wrap things up. Our guest today is a published writer of grim dark fantasy and science fiction, author of the Hounds of the North series, and a martial arts world champion. Welcome to the show, Peter Fugazado. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Man, I am overjoyed and ecstatic to have you on the show today, Peter. Uh, You are the author of the Hounds of the North series. Um, I just read book one, which is The Witch of the Sands, and uh, book two is called Black River, and you're currently working on book three, Five Bloody Heads. Uh, You've had short fiction that appeared in Heroic Fantasy Quarterly and Grimdark Magazines, so kind of short fiction is kind of your forte at this point, would you say? I'm enjoying the the short fiction and also the longer fiction as well. I, I, I like writing across all the ranges. Short fiction is what I've been more successful at in terms of, of getting traditionally published, but I really do enjoy the novel and the novella length, and especially the novella. I think the novella is a really interesting and, and maybe underrated and underutilized length for for a work nowadays and i think it's largely in part because of the way traditional publishing works it's harder for novellas to really fit into the economic model of of traditional publishing and that's what i kind of like about the the digital world of publishing nowadays we can get novellas to the public yeah and we're definitely going to dive into your your publishing practices there now you have self-published the first two books of this series correct yeah they actually started the First book was published, The Witch of the Sand was in December, or actually, I'm sorry, October of 2014, and then I followed it up pretty quickly with Black River in December of 2014, and expecting the next book, Five Bloody Heads, to be out a little bit later this summer. And it's actually, interesting thing is I actually wrote Black River before I wrote The Witch of the Sands, and it was a strategic decision on my part that I wanted to actually get a, a novella out first, something shorter, something that would be easier for folks to dig into and get all the way through and get folks interested in, in the rest of the series. And that was, that was kind of my strategy with that. Yeah, I really enjoyed the, uh, the Witch of the Sands uh, novella. It was a great story, had some cool uh, elements of uh, sword and sorcery mixed with some of the guttural 
emotional stuff. It was definitely a grimdark tale. It's a story of uh, this band of rough northern clansmen, uh, aging northern clansmen, who kind of been through the the ringer as far as the blood and guts go. And uh, it's definitely a, a great story. And I'm looking forward to seeing where the series go. You've got a great uh, great cast of characters. So uh, kudos to you for writing some badass fiction. And we're definitely uh, stoked to have someone of your caliber on the show. And uh, I said on social media today that I, I've had no doubt that everybody who we've interviewed on the show so far could summarily whoop my ass, but uh, <laughs> I have no doubts that you would definitely be the one who could do it the fastest and with most grace and, and just look uh, good doing it because you are a world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu martial artist. That's right. Yeah, I've been studying Brazilian jiu-jitsu for about seven years now. I study under Mikio Riggs, who's a Half Gracie black belt, and I am a purple belt currently, and I won a world championship in 2013. In the old man division, purple belt, light feather. So one of the, one of the smaller guys out there. So every day I step onto the mat, I'm usually outweighed by between 40 to 100 pounds by, by the folks I'm, I'm rolling with. So it, it's, it's a good way to, uh, to toughen me up and, and realize that much of the, the journey in jiu-jitsu as well as in writing is dealing with overcoming adversity and, and setting a daily discipline for it. It helps because you just show up, whether it's on the mat or whether it's sitting down in front of the computer and putting the words on the page. So you wrote about uh, on your blog about how if somebody has a knife, uh, you're not going to lunge face first into their into the knife, basically, like try to try to grab their legs if they're brandishing a knife. Yeah, it was um, it was in a it was a book that I was reading, and it's one of the things when I read, I like to. Well, I think we all do. It, when we read, we don't want to be jarred out of the story by something that doesn't make sense. And, and, and we do it as authors. We're not perfect. We'll, we'll write things that, that perhaps aren't always accurate. But that scene particularly jumped out at me of someone was attacking someone with a knife and the person being attacked tackled them. And for me, that just made no sense because if you're tackling someone who's holding a knife, why don't they just stab you in the back? So, Or, or the face. Or, or the face. It's <laughs> the ear, right? Exactly. Since you have an extensive martial arts background, I, I know you're writing sword and sorcery, so it's mostly concerns with sword fights and and you know people getting smashed in the face with hammers and stuff like that. But have you integrated any of your jujitsu training into uh, your story so far, like any chokes or submissions or anything like that? Actually, in addition to studying Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I've also studied a number of other martial arts including bladed and stick-based arts. Right now, I'm also studying with Anton Haley, and he teaches the Dog Brothers stick fighting methodology. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Dog Brothers. It's actually interesting because the name comes from a Robert E. Howard quotation about the Dog Brothers from a Conan story. And the Dog Brothers are a band of martial artists who like to test material. And so what they do is they hold full contact stick fighting tournaments every year, several times a year, actually. They have different gatherings. Gatherings of the pack is what they call it. And I've been studying with Anton their their methodology. So we do a lot of work with sticks, including sparring. And that has really fed into a lot of the writing that I've done. Understanding how weapons move through space, understanding what actually an encounter's like, because it's not necessarily simply the clashing of the blades. A lot of the fight happens before contact is made. 
there's a range in which we're outside of range in which by being outside of range, meaning weapons cannot touch, the ends of weapons can't touch. There's, there's a whole bunch of different ranges. At some point, I'm actually going to blog about it. But it's kind of this entering range. And a lot of the fight about who's going to win happens there because it's based on fainting. It's based on footwork. It's based on closing the distance. And so I've tried to incorporate a lot of that kind of work from from the, the Dog Brothers as well as um, some other Screama-based work that I've done into, into all the stories that I write. I try to make it realistic in terms of, of how blades or weapons move through space and, and then the interaction between people and also how quickly things can end. I, I think yeah. we often get a sense from, from movies that we watch that fight sequences are long, drawn-out affairs. Not always that way. Mostly, they're going to be faster, especially with a, with a bladed weapon. Contact with the hand, that can end the fight right there. You could cut off the thumb and the weapon will be dropped. So, you know, I like to, you know, be able to bring that kind of stuff in. And then in terms of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I, I've brought a lot in in terms of what I would call the mindset, the mindset of what it takes to to fight with someone. I've competed from white belt up to purple, and purple sort of the middle level belt within Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And what I've tried to bring in was my experience competing at the different levels and kind of overlaying that with my characters in terms of how experienced they would be in terms of fighting. So someone who's a white belt or a novice in a martial art has a very different experience in a, a competitive match versus someone who's been training for seven years. You're, you don't deal with the adrenaline, you're relaxed, you're breathing, you, you, you see more. My first Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I, ended up I ended up winning, but it was, it was just crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. I got up, stepped onto the mat, bowed on, and immediately I felt my muscles tensing up, my stomach dropping, just in complete tunnel vision. The whole world dropped out. I couldn't hear anything. All I saw at the very end of the tunnel was the opponent. And then we just clashed, and it was the rest of it was just this just chaos of grips and attempted sweeps and panting, and it was just crazy. So uh, I try to bring that kind of experience into my writing as well, of, of, of how an inexperienced person may deal with a, a situation of combat versus someone who has more experience. Who's someone who's more experienced is someone who has their breath, is looking for angles, is paying attention to footwork, playing with timing and distance. That's really cool, Lloyd, to think more chaotic way of approaching a fight scene. For example, if you have uh, a relative novice with a sword, he's not going to be doing a lot of fancy shit. He's going to be just swinging and hope he hits something. Versus someone who's a veteran, like I'm assuming most of the hounds in the north yep. uh, are very experienced with their weapons. So there's a lot less of that going on where they're steeled in the face of combat sort of thing. Yeah, exactly that. I've, I've found that the, the best people in Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the competitive sense are often ones who, who have a game plan. And it's not only a game plan, but it's something that they have drilled and worked on for, for years so that it it's becomes first thought versus someone who's newer they don't have that. They walk into a fight and it's just overwhelming impressions. It's too much sensory overload. And so, so that's, you know, that's kind of what I, I try to play with the fight scenes is, is really looking at it. I mean, for one, the fights have to make sense plot wise. They can't just be endless fights, but they need to serve a purpose in order to forward the plot. But they also need to be, when they're told from a particular character's point of view, really fitting into who that character is in terms of their development martially. And so I, I try to, to make sure that the fight scenes do it in that way. 
So I want to ask a little bit about uh, your marketing approach. Uh, this is something I tend to ask a lot of indie writers that come on the show because I'm a fellow indie writer. So I'm always curious, what kind of marketing do you use to reach out to people that you think would be interested in your books? Do you use social media only or do you use other methods that are paid services or anything like that? Yeah, that's a good question. At this point, I'm mostly using social media, websites, word of mouth type marketing. And the reason for that is I want to develop a deeper catalog or library of books before I start spending money on promotions. I want to have yeah. enough out there that that people can be able to see all that I have to offer. I, I, I know I could do some of the other marketing now, paid promotions, but I'm not quite ready at the, this point yet. I mean, my basic strategy is try to write as good books or stories as I can. That's the first level. Second, really focus in on, on covers. This next cover is going to be a better cover than my previous two. They're all, all self-designed covers by me. And I'm excited about the, how the next one's shaping up. So I use those as sort of the primary tools for the base level of marketing, as well as a good product description, good categories or tags on Amazon. And then I've also yeah. played around with the Kindle Limited, I think it is, where you can yeah, yeah right. so give be able to have the book available for free for a number of days, or you do the uh, the countdown pricing. And so I did that mm -hmm. with with the first two books, primarily the free deal with The Witch of the Sands. But now I'm starting to look at rather than working on reducing the price on Amazon, I'm starting to look at building my email list. So right. another key component is is my website. I blog on the website, and then I also you know have links for for the book to be sold. I also have a newsletter sign up through MailChimp. And what I'm doing right now on the website is as I try to draw people to the website through the blog posts, I'm trying to get people to sign up on my email list and get the Witch of the Sands for free. And so the idea is that I would get the folks on my list, I would send them relevant updates about the books that I'm working on, about uh, different things going on. Like, for example, I'll send a, an email to the list about, about the podcast. And, you know, so the goal is to develop that list up so that I have those people in my database, and those are people I can contact directly versus relying simply on Amazon or other outside resellers to contact those folks. And so that's part of my long-term marketing plan. Um, I'm active on Twitter and Facebook and also beginning to play around with Pinterest a little bit. So right right now, that's kind of the plan. I mean, my really long-term plan with it is that I would hit more of what I would term broader success about 10 years down the line. So I'm very patient in what I'm doing, but I want to get that in that 10-year period. This first year is kind of, of, of the indie world for me is getting everything in place. So understanding how to actually get a book up on Amazon. How do I do that? How do I get a, a paperback through through CreateSpace? How do I get a website up? How do I start playing around with Twitter? How do I get the, the, the MailChimp account set up? All those different things. So it's piece by piece getting the infrastructure. And again, making sure I have, the other important part for me is having a good website, having a website that's tailored towards the audience that I'm looking to get interested in my books. I think uh, you and I have similar approach. I've I've kind of did what I call a soft launch, where it's kind of just putting work out there and kind of seeing the reaction to it. I know some people like a different approach. They maybe spend thousands of dollars on a self-published novel and pray to God or pray to whoever <laughs> they whoever they uh, <laughs> worship the Amazon gods, whatever to to help them. 
So I, I think that's an interesting approach, kind of a dip your toe in the water kind of uh, approach. And that's something similar that I've been doing and, and then kind of build off that and hope the brand builds off that because you're doing like short fiction that also gives you more time to work on things rather than a huge epic novel that could take a year or two years to write. Exactly. So. Exactly. I'm trying to get a, a number of, of works out. While I'm in that indie space with the novellas and the novels, I'm really focusing on the on the short stories not being in the indie space, but rather in you know traditional or emerging markets. So whether that's print uh, magazines or online magazines, and that's another part of my marketing strategy is to get the short stories published so that it can get folks interested. Because those those magazines already have an existing membership or existing subscriber list that, that's already funneling into them. So the, getting them exposed to my work through their existing networks is, is part of my strategy as well. And that's so I'm going to continue to write short stories and, and get them out again for that exposure. Now, do you have any plans to have a traditional publisher for any sort of your novel-length works, or are you just going to strict to strictly indie? My plan is to get a certain amount of the catalog as indie, and then as my craft continues to develop, I'll, I'll start looking into the more traditional publishing route. And I've, I've been that's and that's kind of been my initially my thought was just go indie, but now my thought is more along the lines of what people are calling a hybrid author. I mean, I'm already kind of hybrid in terms of the short stories. So the Hounds of the North series most likely will stay in the indie track. And then I have some other stuff that, one, I have a a science fiction story I'm working on. It's kind of like Heart of Darkness meets Deep Space Mining Colony. That one might be stronger in terms of a more traditional market. And then I also have another series that I'm in the planning stages for that I would probably have it be targeting more towards the traditional publishers because I would write it more tightly as a trilogy. And what I mean by that is Black River and and The Witch of the Sands and Five Bloody Heads, they're all part of the Hounds of the North series. But the Hounds of the North series isn't necessarily a chronological telling of the hounds it is happening chronologically but it's not as tight as a trilogy and and that's the intention with it It, it's more i I pick a certain portion of their lives and i focus on it in each of the different books but it's it's not a successive uh a telling of a of a trilogy but that's that's what i intend to do with my next uh fantasy series further down the line another year or so so it's more episodic rather than uh than interconnected story that you have to follow from each uh yeah like you could read you could read black river before which of the sands if you wanted yeah there, there but, there's but, definitely some stuff that gets revealed but it's not make it or break it kind of thing like for example you know, the witch of the the sands really was was tight in terms of following the hounds down in in hoft in the deserts and then black river the hounds are, are traveling north back into their homeland and more characters are introduced, in, including Spear Spearchild, and he's the main character in, in Five Bloody Heads, which happens chronologically after Black River. But it, it's almost, it, it happens in the borderland, so it's not even in the north anymore. So it's kind of a separate world and a whole separate story. It's really important for me when I write, and, and I guess this is just because it bothers me when I read a series, is when there's too much of a cliffhanger and the book itself isn't complete. 
I like mm, yeah. each story or each novel within a series to be complete in, in and of itself so that someone can read it and have that sense of completion and satisfaction. And that's just a personal preference of mine. And so I, I try to make my writing that way too. Just finished book two in Ian Tregellis' Milkweed trilogy. It, it's interesting. It's like superhero Nazis versus British warlocks. It's just, it's crazy stuff. But each of his books is, it's a trilogy. So it works in terms of an arc, even though I haven't gotten to the third book. But it, each of the books stand by themselves and are complete in terms of, of, of the main, the main theme or the main need or plot within each story. The way he finished the, the second book was just absolutely brilliant. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I've got to pick up the third book now. Just, I, I was like, I can't believe he went there with it. So compliments to Ian Tregellis. Yeah, it's yet another title that's on my super high uh, uh, to-be-read list is Mr. Tregellis, so I'd definitely like to jump into that series sometime soon. It's interesting how you're um, currently in the editorial process with the third book in this series, Five Bloody Heads, and you're actually um, having a professional edit with uh, Mr. Scott Odin, who's a friend of our uh, podcast. Um, so you've decided to go with him, and you're and you're doing a pro edit to, to, to make sure that you have the best story possible. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, th that's exactly what it is. You know, my goal as a writer is to continue to improve. It's kind of the same lessons I, I take in from the martial arts. You can always think you're good, but you're never as good as you think you are. So get instruction, get help, realize that the goal is to always be getting better. I mean, that, that's what it's about. It's about improving the craft, um, having other folks who are experienced be able to, to really look at it from an outside eye and provide both detailed line-by-line -line criticism, but also, you know, really overall story arc. One of the things I've learned in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is you just have to tap all the time in order to get better. And tapping basically is when you're caught in a submission, an arm bar or a choke, you tap. By tapping, you learn. And so I, I really have it in the mind of, in my mind that, that you learn through failure, and but failure is, it, it's, it's not a bad thing. It, it's a way to improve. And uh, so I have that same mindset with, with my writing is I, I constantly want to improve. I, you know, I want to get better covers. I want to improve the craft. So, you know, I, I've been working with Scott and have gotten the, the edits back on the first chapter. And I'm excited by the, by the detail and the uh, insightfulness of his, his comments and just really happy to be working with him and waiting the uh, final edits, which um, from him, and then I'm going to get cranking on it and, and, see what I can do with it and, and, and get it out later this summer. So Five Bloody Heads is your next story that will be out. You know, a lot of people like to do uh, fantasy football and create their own team. So I was thinking it'd be interesting to hear who would, who would the, uh, the five bloody heads of various fantasy characters throughout literature, which ones would you want to collect if you could collect five, five bloody heads from anyone in fantasy? This story of Five Bloody Heads is, is basically the story of Spear and his his crew, and they're they're hunting down these ruthless killers who who killed a family. And the girl who survived has offered up five gems for the five heads. So rather than telling you whose heads I'd want, let me tell you who I'd actually want on my team to go track down those uh, heads. Okay. So the first one would be Conan, Robert E. Howard's Conan. Robert E. Howard was a huge influence on my writing. From when I was a teenager locked in the bedroom reading, that was the book, that was what I was picking up, Robert E. Howard. I just loved his world building. I loved the grittiness of it. I loved the darkness of it. I loved 
the pulp aspect of it and the horror aspect of it. So, so Conan's right up there at the top. I also would bring Druss, the legend from, uh, yeah. from David Gemmel's work. Um, cause you one. always need someone with an ax, especially if you're looking for heads. Um, <laughs> another person I would bring in was actually, is actually kind of, it's kind of not necessarily purely in the fantasy world, but a little bit of science fiction would be Nyx. And she's the character from Cameron Hurley's God's War. And, oh, and yeah. she already collects heads. That's what she does. And she has bug, bug powered technology. So she'd be fun to have along. The other person I'd love to see would be, uh, and again, this is pulling more from a science fiction world, would be Ripley from Alien. She could face down anything. And so I'd love to have her on my team. And then the last member of the team would be Boromir from The Lord of the Rings, because somebody's got to die partway through. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta throw somebody out there to get arrows shot into them. Exactly. Not everyone's going to survive the journey. Otherwise, I'm not sure that it's a grim, dark story. It, it is interesting, like... Uh, you know, Conan is obviously a huge influence on anyone that writes sword and sorcery, but it's also interesting that you mentioned uh, Nyx from the God's War series. Uh, I actually started reading that a while back, and uh, it's definitely completely different than anything I've read. Cameron Hurley is definitely one of those authors that is, she writes very unique speculative fiction. So it's kind of interesting you chose, you know, someone kind of very old school like, Conan and then somebody kind of from the new school, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I liked, I, I try to read widely. Um, I'm not as wide read as I should be. I'm sure none of us are. We have piles of books stacked <laughs> yeah. everywhere and, and, and always getting a, the evil eye about another book you brought home. Stop it. Um, <laughs> and especially because there's a, there's a great uh, bookstore near me called Rebound Books. I'm in, in Northern California um, in the bookstores in San Rafael. And Joel, who runs the place, he ha- he always just has like, this fantastic collection of, of of science fiction. He's a science fiction and fantasy author as well. And uh, he just, I always go in there and I'm like, oh, I can't believe he has this. This is great. <laughs> so finding all sorts of things. I'm a huge uh, fan of going out to used bookstores. You're amazed at what you could find out there. So, I mean, the things that people give up, you're like, really? You're not, that's not going to stay in your library forever? So that's <laughs> the way it goes. Yeah, what are you reading um, outside of fantasy? Is it just primarily fantasy, or do you delve into other genres? Um, right now, I'm reading uh, science fiction, partly to turn my mind around for that, for Into Darkness, my, the sci-fi uh, book that I'm about 40,000 words into right now. I'm reading Alistair Reynolds. He wrote the Revelation Space series. Um, right now, I'm trying to remember what I'm actually reading. Oh, I'm reading The Prefect. He's interesting because he just, I don't know, I, I just love his writing. His writing's really solid, but then he also just takes the stories in, in the world building into just fantastic places. For example, the, uh, the prefects, which are basically sort of the law enforcement of this, of this larger galaxy of humans, they have these things called whip hounds. And the whip hounds are like handheld whips, but they're, they're robotic. And so you could tell the whip hound guard and it like shoots out of your hand, slithers across the floor, puts a laser on somebody and then just kind of watches them. And then if the person does something, it'll attack. So he just, he's just real interesting stuff that he writes. Um, and, and he's also written a couple of novellas, which are, which are just uh, spectacular as well. I really enjoy his writing. And then I also, so, I also do read a, a lot of, of nonfiction as well. I'm reading, uh, right now I'm reading Steel Bonnets, which is a, a story of the Reavers uh, along the Scottish border, which is interesting and provides a lot of a uh, source material as well. You know, we're primarily uh, grim dark podcasts, so this is something I kind of want to start asking people more so you're actually the first person 
that we're going to ask. How would you rate on a scale from one to ten, like your grim darkness of your tales? One would be ponies and unicorns, and then uh, ten would be extremely, extremely dark with all sorts of fucking nasty shit in it. I'm probably like a seven or an eight. I recognize this series that I'm writing is grimdark. I don't necessarily position myself that way as an author. I write what I like and what I want to read. And right now, this is what I want to read. I always do want to write something that's, I mean, part of it, I guess, is always always the larger question of what is grimdark? Who defines it? Is it a static definition? Is it a definition that changes over time? I think my work has fits into the grimdark category and has the characteristics of grimdark. But really, for me, a lot of it is is I want to write things that are gritty. I don't want to write the chosen one story. Um, I don't want to write a story that that is too much of a happy ending in general. I want, I'm looking for a more realistic spin on the fantasy genre. And, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be bloodier, though it often is, because if there's swords, there's going to be blood. But for me, it's also a question of of defining grimdark in terms of a gray area in terms of, of character. And that's what really draws it to me. It's people who are not the paragons. These are the people who are the fallen. These are the people who are aging. These are the people who have failed. And for me, it simply makes a more interesting story. Um, I'm not as interested in, in kings and court politics. I'm more interested in common blue-collar people on their journey doing their thing that involves swords. So the, the grunts in terms of the soldiers, you know, I've also been, you know, influenced by the work of Glenn Cook as well. And another influence for me is, which comes from a little bit farther afield, is the work of Joseph Conrad. And just again, that, that sense of, of atmosphere and place and the sense of characters and, and moral decisions that get made. And then perhaps in the grimdark world have an even more significant consequence. What I'm starting to see with, with the, the idea of grimdark is, uh, this is something John R. Fultz actually mentioned when he was on. And I think he wrote a article about it with grimdark magazine, I believe. Uh, about how Grimdark is kind of the new sword and sorcery. Yeah. It focuses more on realistic kind of people. I would consider Grimdark in a lot of ways to sometimes be sword and sorcery without as much sorcery. It's like more swords or more uh, realistic things happening. Uh, I, I don't see as much magic and stuff in a lot of Grimdark stories or monsters or any kind of the typical fantasy stuff. So that's something that, that interested me about your uh, story, the witch of the sands, because it had magic in it. And that was really cool to read something that was dark, but also had a fair share of fantastical, you know, elements to it. Yeah. So it's definitely, I think that's the sword and sorcery influence from my childhood. And it's something I, I definitely want to keep in the work. I think black river, you know, you'll see more magic and then actually less magic in Five Bloody Heads. Five Bloody Heads for me was taking things back away from the magic a little and almost kind of looking at it almost from a, a Western angle. Part of the inf- oh. part of the influence for it was uh, was True Grit, um, mm. sort of that sort of that same idea of an outlaw taking on a job for a girl and uh, hunting down killers. So you know, same basic idea. Now, you uh, mentioned on your blog, too, that you are an advocate for NaNoWriMo. 
what is it about NaNoWriMo that uh, you think uh, writers should uh, should uh, take advantage of? What What are some tips you think that people should uh, should look at well, to uh, participate in? I, well, I mean, in terms of tips and participating, one is you just have to commit. And I think that's the hardest part, especially for newer writers, is to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for a month, no matter how hard it is. But I think what it does is it really does, NaNoWriMo is, is encouraging. It helps people establish a practice. And a practice is essential to writing. If you're not writing in a practiced manner, and it doesn't always have to be every day, depending where you are with with any work in particular. Um, if you're not practicing in a writing, a writing in a practice manner, you're not gonna you're not gonna make the progress you need to make. You're not gonna be able to finish works, and that's what I like about NaNoWriMo. Is it because you know it would probably be better if it was six weeks? Because my understanding is that it takes about six weeks for some sort of practice to actually become ingrained into becoming a habit. So if you wrote for six weeks straight, then you would probably be it'd be easier to continue to write versus just writing for four weeks, which is what NaNoWriMo is. So I actually am an advocate of that also. More more from a, I know some people do NaNoWriMo and they're looking at it more along, okay, I'm going to write something in a month and then I'm going to publish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I always have looked at it as a way to practice habits. Yeah. And something when I was a kid, I wanted, I wanted to do karate and, uh, I wanted to do karate because I wanted just to kick people. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I thought it was like, okay, I can kick people and that'll be cool. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, about a weekend I noticed I'm a white belt and I'm not getting to kick anybody. Yep. So I keep thinking, when am I going to get to kick somebody? And I was just impatient and then I quit. So for writing, it can be the same way. You can, you can write something and then you're, you get impatient with it and go, well, how come nobody will publish this or how come nobody's reading this or whatever? And then it's easy to quit. So I think people, it, it has a similar mentality like, you know, studying a martial art and writing is, you know, a patient person's game. You can't just get in there and start kicking everybody. You have to focus on learning the basics before you can or you start kicking everybody's ass basically yeah exactly i mean it's important to view both writing and martial arts and life as the long road i mean you definitely need to be doing what you want to be doing don't wait and don't not do it but you have to realize that there's ups and downs in everything there's peaks and valleys and it's just all part of life and i think it's easier to approach anything if you just realize that everything essentially is about overcoming the challenges because Every day we face challenges and to get that mentality of like, I'm going to deal with the challenges because that's simply what life is, dealing with the challenges, it makes it easier to stick with it in the long term versus being more focused on the outcomes or the success. It's much more rewarding to be in the process of it. And I find that both in the moment when I'm rolling in jujitsu and in the moment when I'm writing. Those are the two moments that I have the, sort of the greatest creative fulfillment. I mean, that, that's what everyone should should really strive for is, is finding those those things that you do that can that can uh, fill that gap or uh, make your life meaningful. Now, our philosophy definitely, uh, or at least Phil and myself, is to encourage writers to make an effort to improve your craft. One step in that is that we recommend folks join local writing critique groups or even online critique groups. Um, so that they can share their stuff with other writers and hopefully learn how to get better and then ideally someday have a good enough skill to make fiction that's sellable (laughs) or at least entertaining to say the least. But uh, you are a part of a local critique group. Is that correct? 
Well, you know, I was, but then the, as these things happen with critique groups, it, it basically kind of just disintegrated after a period of time. So we, at one point we had a core of about, um, I think it was five people. We were meeting monthly, sharing works, and then people just stopped coming. And I think that's just the nature of it. And again, it's kind of similar to Phil's karate experiences. People show up and then kind of realize, well, well, this is what it's about. And then, you know, it's just hard. Other people have other priorities in life. And I think if you're, if you're writing, it's really important to make writing one of your, your top three priorities. And uh, I found that the critique group was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I was able to read other people's works. And th that's kind of one of the, I think one of the, the best parts of a critique group is actually being able to, to read other people's works because it's not yours and being able to politely point out what you see might be some areas where it, it could, uh, improve. And, uh, that, that's the way I think I've learned a lot about writing is looking at other people's works. When I was in, in college, I was, I did a, a minor in, in fiction writing, and so I was part of workshops and critique groups, and, and it was there that I learned, you know, about that whole process of, of how to look at someone's work, how to edit it, how to uh, provide constructive feedback. Because, I mean, the one thing you don't want to do is squash anyone's interest or desire in writing, because it, it's such a beautiful thing, and I, I'm really of the mind that writers should not be competitive amongst each other. But we should be really supportive and on each other's team and try to help everyone succeed because there's a lot of space for writers, especially, you know, now that we're seeing more independent uh, publishing opportunities as well. And so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of supporting folks in all their different styles of writing, even if it's a story that I don't, or a style that I don't particularly care for. Well, I think there's always people that like different kinds of stuff. So even if someone, say, likes your style, they may find other people that write a similar style that they like also. Yep. So it, it helps to, I know some people don't like genre definitions, but sometimes that helps. Like if somebody says, Oh, you like sword and sorcery, then right. these guys are writing sword and sorcery also. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing about critique groups that I've found interesting is I think sometimes I, I guess newer people, I think they want people to say, Oh yeah, man, you're fucking awesome. Publish this shit, you know, right now. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is the equivalent of, you know, me being a white belt and, and wanting to just kick the shit out of somebody on the first day, but that's not going to happen. So critique groups are also, uh, you have to be patient and, and learn what different people like and what different people don't like. And the whole thing with critique groups is you never really have to take to heart what people say anyway. Right. If, if it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work for you. But it's good to get that feedback to at least get to thinking about those kind of things. Yeah, largely what I look for from the critiques, I mean, it depends who's critiquing it. Some folks I, I trust more implicitly what they have to say in terms of the critique because they are perhaps deeper readers and have read more work similar. Other folks, it's really important for me to get the critique back from them to see if there's something that I've said that just doesn't make sense or is not clear. I mean, one of the things we're always striving for with authors, and I mean, for me, it's always a struggle, is to be as clear as possible in terms of actually writing what I intend to mean. So oftentimes, you know, even if someone doesn't offer the deepest critique, if they, if they just look at something and say, I don't understand what you're writing, it's very valuable. So, Yeah, I really appreciate your um, humble approach to writing, if I may say it that way, that you you have this trajectory that you've mapped out for, for yourself right now, where you, you, you're writing, but you, you're, you have your writing in the editorial process with guys like Scott Oden to make sure that you're writing some, some solid shit, and uh, I appreciate that. You're not 
you're not gung ho. You don't have the. You didn't just get your green belt and now you're trying to go to the championship. I mean, um, right. I, I definitely see that you you know that you need to evolve and grow and that you still kind of envision that your writing needs to get to a certain point to where it's not at presently. Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to get better. I mean, that, that's essentially what it comes down to. And if I thought I was really good, it would be boring, I think. <laughs> if I wrote the perfect story, what would I do after that? Um, you know, I look at you know the stories I had published, and I see things I could have done better. But it's just part of the learning process, and it, it makes it interesting. It'd be just phenomenally boring to, to be the best writer ever. Because, um, I mean, sure, you spin a tale in... You get accolades, but you know it's not that important to me. For me, it, it's really the process and the growth. And obviously, I like to, I like to know that people read it and enjoyed it, just because that they enjoyed it and I, I told a story they liked. You know, I like that. But I'm also always of the mind that it, it's kind of like one of those. Is it a parabola? Is that what it is? The lion always approaching but never getting there. I'm not sure if that's is that a parabola. <laughs> I was an English major. English major. You're at. You're asking the wrong people. I was an English major also. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think that's what they call it. Um, I've had arguments with people about it recently, but no one else seemed to came, come up with a, the proper name for it. But it, it's the idea of, of, of a curved line approaching but never getting there. And, you know, that's kind of the way I see life. You'd rather have it be the curved line approaching but never quite getting to the end, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get to the end yet. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll just, we'll just work on that curve and, and uh, enjoy the curve. And just start with our conversation and then reading your bio and what I've learned about you. It really seems that you are not only kind of, um, you know, creative, but you're also very balanced as far as it goes uh, physically and, and mentally, spiritually, emotionally. You seem very well-grounded and well-centered. You probably, you, I mean, you work out, don't you? Well, I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, four, five times a week. And that's usually an hour to two and a half hours of, of just pure hard cardio. And then when I'm actually competing, I'll, I'll add extra days of, of cardio and conditioning. There's a lot of physical activity in my life. One of the nicest things recently is, is my, my daughter, who's 12 years old, after initial resistance, has begun doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well. So we have a shared thing in the family. And she's also a writer as well. She just did uh, something called the... Uh, the Bay Area Writing Project, uh, summer writing camp, I think it's called. But it, it, it's a three-week camp, and kids go there from 9 to 12 in the morning, and they're given a, a laptop, and they get on Google Docs, and they write, and they have little critique groups. And then they, they finish out the session by having the kids read at a local bookstore you know, with the podium and the microphone. And it's just, it's just an amazing thing to see. That's so awesome. I wish I would have had something like that. Yeah, no, no kidding. Younger. Yeah, my camp was like, get sent away and throw sticks on a bonfire. <laughs> yeah. Mine was like, uh, hang out and look at girls that I, I never talked to. That was my, <laughs> my summer camp. Exactly. The, the, oh my gosh, I asked them to dance. Then camp's <laughs> yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it's fun to be able to, I mean, that's, you know, part of, I, I really enjoy sharing the writing with my daughter and and just seeing her involved in the creative process and also her being involved in the martial arts. Because it's just, you know, martial arts and writing is just, they fit together real nicely and they, they really help develop character and discipline and just a nice outlet for life. Now, in that vein of being so so well-balanced both physically and emotionally and, and mentally, uh, would you say that physical health attributes to writing good fiction? I'm not sure if there's a correlation. I think it helps me. 
especially with the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it, it's hard physical work, but, but the essence of it is when you're rolling, is it's purely meditative because you can't think about anything else um, other than someone's you know hand in your collar, someone wrenching your arm, you figure out how to escape, you figure out how to get to their back, how to take them down. So it's really meditative, and I think that meditative aspect really clears out a lot of mental clutter so that I can sit down and write. And so for me, it's, it's, it's an important part to have that, that physical aspect because I think it does support the writing because the writing also is, is so sedentary and it's so in the head. So it's nice to get, be able to get out of the head and to be able to socialize and to be able to, to you know, get the endorphins out. I think that is part of what contributes to the myth of writer's block, which I don't really believe in writer's block. If you're just sitting in front of a computer all day and you're not really moving around, you're not really socializing with people and these kind of things, I think that does contribute to being blocked. I think actually going outside and saying, oh, look, there's stuff outside that actually can wake something up inside you and, you know, doing an activity or doing training or doing anything, get your brain, you know, the blood in your brain flowing more. So I think that is a good thing to have as a, a regular, regular physical activity is good to go along with writing because otherwise you're just sitting and staring and not really getting anything sometimes. And I also, I also think the physical activity, especially if it's something you do regularly it, it, and then you're working on top of that is it, it helps you better prioritize the time that you have available to write because you realize that the time you have available to write is limited. So you better just get writing. And that's the way I see it is that it's, you've got it. You've, Get your time for writing and you make the most of it. You can't, you just write. You got to just put the stories together. You know, I think one thing for me that's also really helped in terms of any kind of pauses in the writing process has been I've increasingly started becoming more serious about planning and plotting of my stories in advance uh, prior to, to writing them. And I've used a, an interesting combination of, of, you know, kind of what I've relied on is really looking at what some of the, the folks who are talking about story in the screenwriting world have, have put together in terms of, of methods. And lately, what I've been working with is a combination of, of what's called uh, the Save the Cat Beats, I think it's called, and then uh, John Truby, who has 22 steps. And there's just, it's really, it's been interesting and helpful for me to be able to frame and to construct the stories in, in, in character, where the characters and the plot overlay, and then to be able to come out of this planning process with essentially what they call a scene weave, which is essentially every single scene in the story and understanding how it fits in with how a story is classically told in terms of inciting incidents, in terms of revelations, in terms of uh, changes in the characters. So it, it's for me to not hit a writer's block about, you know, 40 or 50,000 words into a story, having it tightly plotted out makes a huge difference because I know what I'm going to write next. And even if I go back and edit it and it's, you know, if I do a structural edit and it completely change it around, at least I've gotten that first draft down based on, on the, the map that I laid out. Yeah. I think pre-writing has helped me a lot in that regard. Uh, just basically before I write, I write about what I'm going to write about. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds weird, but I guess no, it, uh, it's a, it's smart is what it is. Yeah. It's a meth. It's a method I heard about before instead of you know just write out the scene that you're going to write and not think about the big picture as much and then uh, of course you still have to think about it but it makes you focus on that one scene so it's less overwhelming i think yeah yeah 
I, I think definitely having a, a roadmap in place has been useful for me. And it, I think what it the, the the map in place, even if it's and it's been at different stages. Sometimes it's very loose. Now I'm getting much more detailed in the way I'm plotting and planning. It, it allows me to finish, and I think that's such a critical uh, part of a, of a writer's growth is to move from the point of idea in writing to actually being able to complete a work, and especially a novel length work. For me, that was a major challenge for a number of years of actually being able to complete something. Yeah, definitely for me also. I'm just now getting to the point where I'm completing pretty much everything I work on. So that's, that's been great. a big boon to my confidence. Well, I That's think. fun then because then you start getting more ideas. You got these ideas just stacked up and you're just like, then you get to this point of like, oh my God, I don't have enough time to do all this writing. <laughs> and that's how I feel. I mean, I'm like, I've got stories stacked up that I want to write. But it's like, okay, I just got to work through them, you know, and write them well and take my time with each story and not be rushed about it. But it's nice to have that space of accomplishment and success. And it just just makes you excited about writing. And that's when the other ideas start coming out of out of the woodwork sometimes, which is fun. So, Peter, you mentioned that you were looking into doing a little bit of Pinterest um, as far as uh, your writing process. I, too, have have a Pinterest account. Uh, I've been collecting some pins and I actually have, have utilized it myself in my writing process too. And what I've used it for was um, developing a dramatis personae, if you will, just finding pictures of people that I might think would be in my story. Uh, very simple uh, little thing to do, but it just gives me somebody that I can visualize because uh, I'm a visual person, uh, but I can see them. I can put a, maybe a name, a character description, and it, it, it kind of helps me get the ball rolling on things. Now, now you've utilized Pinterest as well uh, for, for your writing. Go ahead and uh, tell us a bit about your, your experience so far. Yeah, I, I've recently sort of discovered the world of Pinterest, and it actually came about because my wife is a landscape gardener. And what she's done is established Pinterest boards for her clients. And what she does is she put together the boards and the boards actually collect all the different plants and sort of pretty pictures of how their gardens might look. And so that got me to thinking, because she's using it as an idea board, is that I could do the same thing. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm using Pinterest. I'm using it as an idea board for, for both the stories that I've written and as well as for stories in development. In terms of the stories that I've written, what I'm doing is I'm sharing images and photos of the people, like, for example, the Pictish people, uh, landscapes, to give readers a sense when they, you know, they look into a different uh, a Pinterest album to see, like, what inspired the story. I'm also doing the same thing for my, my upcoming series, which is takes place in Southeast Asia. So I've been collecting a lot of pins for the, uh, really, to give myself inspiration in terms of the geography especially the oceans uh, in the seas of, of Southeast Asia, as well as, as traditional dress, weapons. Um, and really, I'm using it as, as a place to fuel the imagination to get the story going. Peter, it's been awesome to have you on the show today. We're just about an hour into our interview here, and uh, we've definitely taken up uh, plenty of your evening. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. For folks who want to get in touch with you and then find you on social media and whatnot, uh, Tell, tell our listeners where they can uh, track you down and find out more. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you very much. I, I appreciated the opportunity to talk with you guys about about my writing and, and, and my process and, and the books that I have out and coming out. Um, people can find me on my website, and the website is www.peterfugazato.com, and I'm anticipating that would be in the show notes because it will be hard to sound that one out and spell it correctly. So <laughs> you guys will need to look. Um, you can also find me on Facebook 
and I'm on Twitter. And one thing we do here on the Writer's Pit, too, uh, with each of our guests is what we like to do is we conclude with a creative prompt. Would you offer our listeners a creative prompt? It could be a writing prompt. It could be a creative practice. Something that uh, our listeners could take away today and apply and, and ideally um, improve their craft or their writing in some way, shape, or, or fashion. Well, I listened to the other uh, podcast, so I, I was prepared. Um, so this is actually something that I used to write The King Beneath the Waves, which is a story I had in, published in, in Grim Dark Magazine number three. And it, it wasn't necessarily this prompt exactly, but this is where it came from, was my daughter and I were beginning to memorize Seamus Haney's translation of, of Beowulf. Wow. And well, <laughs> yeah, needless to say, we did not get very far. But a couple lines from from his translation jumped out at me. And it was basically a couple lines that were talking about, I want to say Shield Chiefsons, but that, that was his name maybe, and how he had died and he was put on, on, on the boat and the boat was sent out, you know, his funeral boat with, loaded down with riches and weapons and it was sent out into the sea for his burial and no one ever knows whatever happened to that boat. And that became the, the story inspiration for, for the king beneath the waves, which is essentially what happens if a bunch of clansmen find the boat. And so that, that's what that story is about. So the writing prompt is to find Seamus Haney's translation of Beowulf, open it up to any random page and find four lines that will inspire you to write a really good short story. Yeah. <laughs> I, have to, I have to look that up. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Peter Fugazzato, man, it's been great speaking with you tonight. Thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. And man, best of luck to you in your future literary endeavors. Uh, we look forward to you getting some ass. It's going to be pretty cool. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And thanks again to Peter Fugazzato for taking the time uh, to join us for the Writer's Pit episode. If you wanted to check out his website, it is peterfugazzato.com, and that is spelled F-U-G-A-Z-Z-O-T-T-O is the website. Be sure to drop by there and then sign up for his mailing list, and you'll get a free copy of Witch of the Sands, which is very cool. And uh, we look forward to having Peter back on uh, for future episodes. He is just a fount of wisdom and writerly knowledge, especially when it comes to writing combat and stuff like that. So it'll be cool to have him back on the show sometime. And also we recorded a reading with him, which uh, will be available. I'm assuming by the time everyone listens to this podcast. So find the link that we will share and partake in the awesomeness of five bloody heads, which will be released soonish. I'm not sure the release date as of yet, but um, we'll let you know when it's uh, coming out. Absolutely. We will shout it from the mountaintops. Um, he said it will be out this summer. So we're hopefully maybe by the end of August, maybe early September, he'll have uh, the edits done and it will be ready for consumption by the masses. But uh, thanks again to Peter for, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, lots of cool guests coming up. We've got uh, Holly Heisey, who's a writer, a book cover designer, and a Wattpad assassin. Uh, we've got uh, indie author Will Bly, who's going to join us to talk about uh, humor and uh, using smash words. And also the editor of Grimdark Magazine, Adrian Collins, uh, live from Australia, will be on the program as well. Uh, but we also have some fine uh, literary uh, pillars of our generation. Uh, we've got R.A. Salvatore 
going to be joining us on the program, which is incredibly awesome. We've got uh, Mazarkus Williams, who will be making uh, a podcast debut, so to speak. Never done a podcast before, but we will have Mazarkus on the show, and that will be fairly awesome. Uh, Cameron Hurley, also going to be on the show. She's going to be promoting uh, The Empire Ascendant, the uh, sequel to The Mirror Empire. Also, fantasy author Anthony Ryan will be on the show and Sebastian de Castell. So a myriad of awesome folks uh, to come your way over the coming months uh, here on the Grim Tidings podcast. Yes, we're definitely looking forward to speaking to all of our guests. And we're hyped beyond belief and jumping out of our seats and going fucking apeshit. <laughs> it's going to be pretty awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so shows coming your way each and every week. Be sure to download us on iTunes and Stitcher. Check us out on Facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast, or we're on Twitter. Is that right, Philip? Yes, the Twitter is at Grimdark Fiction. At Grimdark Fiction. Check us is out. Is that right? That's right. You got it. Did you have to <laughs> Google it or look it up this time? Or No. Oh, nice. I had a brain fart, so I wasn't sure. <laughs> So that's what we have for you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Writer's Pit. Uh, until next time, go write some shit, you know? Be productive. Get some words on the page. Or I swear to God, everyone gets pushed. I actually proclaimed August uh, Get Shit Done month. So if it's August by the time you listen to this, go get some shit done. Absolutely. Until next time, hey, take care. Thanks for listening. Bye.